Hi, you're listening to Creatives Making Money, the podcast for creative service providers on a mission to do the work they feel called to and make excellent money while they do it. This is a show for the writers, makers, dreamers, doers, creators, artists, the crazy ones, the ones who are determined to consciously build the life and career of their dreams. Here, we don't just believe in getting your dream job. We believe in creating it. So what does creative success look like? How do we live a fully expressed, abundant life? How do we create the revenue we desire and hold space for our soul projects? That's precisely what we're here to talk about. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, award-winning screenwriter, conversion copywriter, former agency founder and CEO, serial entrepreneur, and shameless creator. No matter where you are in your creative and financial journey, I'm here to help you create like you mean it. Welcome to Creatives Making Money. Today I have with me Ada Matasovsky, and she wears two hats. One as the founder of The Money Mind, which offers personal coaching and financial education to help clients live a better life by improving their relationship to money, one habit and one mindset at a time. The other as a wealth manager and financial planner at Optimist Capital. In both roles, she is focused on making clients feel empowered, informed, and in control of their financial lives. The Money Mind is a passion project that evolved from Ada's 25 years experience as a private banker and wealth manager. So you can guess, you can bet your bottom dollar (laughs) that there's going to be a lot of incredible wisdom. You probably want to get out a pen and a pencil to take notes on all the things that Ada is going to share with us today. I'm so grateful to have you sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yay. So, okay, (laughs) let's dig into like your 25 years as a private banker and wealth manager. Like, let's just start there for a second. Okay. How did did you end up in the finance industry in the first place? Completely by accident. Um, I actually, when I went to college, I went to a liberal arts school and my parents hated the fact that it was a liberal arts school because they were European and they thought I should, you know, come out of college with a profession. And so the compromise was that I would take like practical courses and the most practical thing I could think of was economics. So I ended up majoring in economics um, and uh, French language and civilization and took lots of acting classes on the side. And so after I graduated, I wanted to go off to Paris and find myself and my parents, uh, at the time it was, it was a recession and my parents were like, go get a job. And I'm like, okay. So my second interview was with this venture capital firm on Wall Street and it was literally like 44 Wall Street was the address. And I got the job and that really started me on my finance trajectory. And so I worked on Wall Street for many years. I ended up working in in venture capital. Then I went to private banking. A lot of people don't know what private banking is and, and the easiest way to describe it is my job was to help make rich people richer and kind of really delve into all the different facets of their lives which gave me a very interesting inside view into how people operate financially. And then I ended up uh, becoming a wealth manager, dealing more with like people's financial planning and portfolios. And, and that's where I am now. And that's actually also where the money mind sort of started to blossom because I started seeing these people that from the outside, you would think that they were super successful but they had all these financial problems. 
And at first I was like, this doesn't really make sense to me. But then when I kind of looked under the hood, I realized that a lot of their issues were issues about being financially educated because their speciality was something totally different. Um, it was a matter also of their psychological and emotional relationship to money and how that affected the choices that they made, even if they knew better. For example, I had one client who made a million dollars a year and he was constantly in debt because he would always spend $1.2 million a year. But you know, people that make $50,000 a year have the same problem. It's, it's more about understanding how to live below your means and just slightly below your means. And if you can't do that, why? And so that's where the money mind came in to try and help people kind of figure out what's going on under the hood. What can I improve on so that I can become more financially healthy? I love that. I'm so like, this is fascinating. When you talk about learning how people operate financially, because you mentioned that before, and that was sort of a statement that I underlined in my brain that I wanted to ask you about and dive in deeper on. Do you mean, is is that what you mean? That, that that was sort of like a trend or pattern that you were noticing across the board in terms of like, you could make a million dollars, but you're spending 1.2. Um, I find it so fascinating that that can happen at every level. Cause I think most people don't think about that. They're just like, well, when I make X amount more then like it will change and it'll look like this instead of yeah. like these habits come with me and like the, the, they just like grow or shrink based on, based on, you know, what the top number is or whatever. Well, that's one of the interesting things about life is everyone says that everyone says, Oh, if only I made more money, I'd be happier. I'd have a better life. I'd feel more stable. But the problem is that when you start to make more money, you spend more money. Like if you, if you live in, you know, an apartment where you're spending $1,500 a month in rent, and you're making $75,000 a year and you snap your fingers and win the lotto and, and let's say you get a job and you're making $300,000 a year and you buy a house, right? So you're spending more, you buy you know, a better car, you buy more expensive clothes. So people, it's a natural human instinct to always like spend up to where their income level is as opposed to spending a little less or keeping the same, you know, spending levels as before. And that's one of the things that gets people into trouble. Um, and one of the things that I would say that can help anybody is always live a little bit below your means. Not a lot, just a little. <laughs> I feel like there's, that reminds me of like a song. You're like, not a lot, just a little. <laughs> there's like a, there's a jingle there. <laughs> I'm sure we can put like a good, like melody behind that. <laughs> yeah. So in, when you, so I know that you focus a lot on, on women and creatives in particular, although I am, my sense is that's, you know, some of the clients that you're talking about are also men and that you're seeing sort of embodying the same, like the, the problematic patterns, I guess, is what we'll call them for the purposes of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Do you see different patterns in male clients versus female clients? Is it similar? Well, the thing is, at the end of the day, how financially healthy you are is really a component of your personality. It's a component of your mindset. 
It's a component of your, your relationship to money. It's a component of your habits. And that is not gender specific. However, there are certain things that do differentiate men from women. For example, psychologically, women tend to see money as being dirty in a way that men often don't. They, they feel guilty when they make a lot of money. Um, they feel guilty when they're very successful or they think, like I have a friend of mine, for example, who's, who's a, a really successful cinematographer and she, she also directs and she makes a very good living, but she is not financially where she wants to be because she always feels guilty about the money that she makes. So she doesn't really focus on investing it. She doesn't focus on being on top of her money and she just wants to throw it in a corner and not think about it. And so that's, that's hampered her ability to really save the way she should have saved and to be where she should be financially. Um, and women tend to start to save and invest much later in life than men do. And when they do start to invest, they tend to be much more conservative in their investments. And when you're super conservative, it means you make less money. Um, so that's, that's another big difference, I think, between men and women. Um, and there are other differences, but they're more systemic. And one of the reasons I, I you're right, I, I have had lots of male clients. In fact, when I was in private banking, most of my clients were men. But I like to focus as much as possible on women because they've gotten the short end of the stick for a really long time. And it's not just about personal responsibility because that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, coin is that the system is set up so that they're always behind the eight ball. And that's something that they can't really control. That's, that's something that needs to be changed in terms of culture, in terms of legislation. Um, so what I find is that all these um, systemic obstacles tend to accumulate over time. So they may not seem like such a big deal in the short term, but over let's say a lifetime can be, you might be looking at a loss of hundreds of thousands of dollars for an average middle-class woman. And that's a lot. Um, and they usually are, are due to four factors. One is the pay gap. Um, one is the motherhood penalty. One is the pink tax. And the other one is retirement obstacles, which kind of circles back to the pay gap because when you're working for a company, not so much if, if you are a freelancer, but if you're working for a company, very often they will base your, um, re the retirement money that they give you as part of your benefits package on your salary. So if you're making 81 cents to the dollar that a man makes, that affects how much money the company contributes to your 401k plan. It affects the amount of money that goes into your social security benefits. So, you know, the pay gap is, is actually a really huge problem. Um, and it, it, it really starts you at a deficit from the get-go. And then the other problem too is 
if you look at the data, women's salary growth rates start to slow down when they hit about the age of 33. And I, I want to say that I think it's because that's when a lot of women start to have children and they usually uh, leave the workforce or work part-time for a little while. And then after a few years, once the kid is, is in school, they go back to work, but there's an opportunity cost to that because all those years they haven't been making money or haven't been making as much money, which also means there hasn't been much contribution to their retirement funds. Um, and also they tend to, like employers tend to look at women once they have children more as a liability, whereas they look at men that have a family as being more reliable in terms of you know, being a good worker, whereas women get dinged for the same thing. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, with the pink tax, women tend to pay a lot more for the same products that men do. And, and there've been lots of articles about this, deodorant, shampoo, dry cleaning, the fact that feminine hygiene products are taxed as a luxury item, you know, things like that. And that also adds up because how can you save if your expenses are so much higher? And then for women, there's also the cultural aspect because women are expected to look a certain way, which costs a lot of money, you know, in between like our haircuts that cost like 10 times more, our manicures, our cosmetics, our skincare, our Botox, plastic surgery, our clothes, where, you know, look at a man's closet and look at a woman's closet. <laughs> I guarantee you there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars difference between the value of a man's closet and a woman's closet in the same household. Um, so it, again, it becomes very difficult for women to save for their goals, for the things that they want, whether it's buying a home, sending their kids to college, retirement, when they're making so much less money. And then to make matters worse, women tend to live longer than men do. I was gonna ask about that. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a big thing too. So, so basically not only is there, are their retirement funds smaller, it has to last longer. So those are, those are all really big challenges. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, I'm also thinking about like the single mothers I'm thinking mm -hmm. about, like, like also not just like white says hetero version of this and how yep. that changes things or that like switches things up as well. Like there's just a lot of, a lot of factors that sort of can come into play that impact this even more, oh, even yeah. more significantly, especially when we're talking about like women being, you know, primarily the, the parent that's like attached to the child and yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not just how like the corporate sees a mother. It's also like, then you have the expense of, of the child and like all these other pieces, which, you know, sometimes, you know, you're in, you're in a partnership where that's happening together and sometimes it's not. And, right. um, and then there's a whole other host of reasons why, a father may be absent from the picture or unable to contribute financially, which we won't in the US, which we won't necessarily get into all of those details right now, but I want to mention them because they're all real. Well, it's interesting you say that because I came across um, 
I was reading something about Elizabeth Warren and, you know, she used to be a bankruptcy lawyer and she had observed that motherhood is one of the single strongest predictors of both bankruptcy and poverty in the United States. So that goes right to your point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah like, which is that's, why, that's like a horrifying statistic. I know. I know. And, and again, this is why, as with everything, women, I think, need to be a lot savvier than, than men do about things because they do have much higher obstacles to overcome, which is not to say they can't or they can't have a wonderful life. I think they can, but they just have to really take the bull by the horns and, and they can't shy away from you know, confronting difficult or uncomfortable financial issues. And the other thing too that, that I've noticed that drives me crazy is if you have, and this usually happens when you have like a husband and wife, where the husband, uh, the wife might do like the day-to-day budgeting and go grocery shopping and all that stuff, but it's the man who um, has the investment accounts and it's the man who has like the insurance and the wills and all of that stuff. And very often the woman either doesn't want to know and, and doesn't want to deal with it. And she's like, oh, just, I'm going to let my husband deal with it. Or the husband wants more control and doesn't let the wife really know. And the problem with that is in the event of divorce or in the event that he passes away, she's not going to know where anything is. She's not going to know who to call. She's not going to have a relationship with anybody. Um, and also what happens if he just decides to up and leave and she has no idea where any of the assets are. That's problematic. I've seen that. Uh. <laughs> Numerous times. <laughs> I'm laughing because I don't know how else to react. Yeah. But I mean, it's not, yeah, it's a lot. It's a it lot, is. a lot. It is. I mean, um, I don't know if your mom or grandma used to say this, but I, I remember my mom she always used to tell me, and this was when I was a kid, um, that you should always have money set aside that your husband doesn't know about. And I used to always laugh at her. I'm like, that's so crazy. <laughs> and of course, you can't really do that in this day and age, but you can have your own accounts. And I think that's really important. And if you are in a relationship where you're living with a significant other or you're married, yes, you can have like a joint bank account to pay bills and stuff like that. And maybe even like one joint credit card, but you must know that it's important to have your own bank account and your own credit cards to protect yourself. Because, you know, let's say your significant other decides to like disappear or cut you off from the money. Because if you're in a joint account, either one of you can call up the bank and be like, I want to transfer this money to X account and close the account. And if you don't know that your partner is doing that, all of a sudden you have no money. If they close the credit card, you have no access to credit. If they run up their credit card as a joint holder, you are liable on that credit card and it can ruin your credit. So it's really good to make sure that you have your own money and access to your own money separate from, from your you know, significant others. And I think communication is really important. I, you know, marriage 
needs to have open, transparent communication about difficult topics. And one of those is money. And a lot of people feel very uncomfortable talking about money and having money conversations for whatever reason, um, but they are critical. Yeah. I mean, I feel like one of the biggest reasons that that is pointed to in terms of relationship issues or marriage issues, it's like money is one of those topics that mm -hmm. can be problematic and can like create rifts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But isn't it better to, to have those conversations early on? Of course. Yeah. In terms of, um, you know, when we're talking about mindset, particularly as, as we're talking to like creatives and women, um, in particular, I'm curious to hear, uh, when you're talking about financial handicaps, one of the things that kind of came up for me as we were talking about like the pay gap and people who are working, you know, for companies or corporations, when we're thinking about like the freelancer, the artist, the entrepreneur, um, what comes to mind for me is like, what's their mindset around their value and like, are they charging enough money? And, and is all of that aligned or not aligned? Um, I'm curious if that's something that you're encountering with your clients and how that's showing up, or if there's another sort of pattern or trend with that particular, you know, group. I think that's a really great question. Um, yeah, I, I do think, and especially for women, because women in general tend to not be as assertive and self-confident as men are when they're asking for money and knowing their own self-worth. And again, there are always exceptions to that, but as a rule, yes. Um, and part of that also is that when they demand more money the way a man demands more money, they're actually dinged for it. Um, and as you know, the, the creatives that I've, I've sort of worked with, um, you know, whether it was behind the camera, in front of the camera, um, whether it was in other creative industries, there is that issue of self-worth. Um, and I do think that is a, a creative psychological obstacle, regardless of whether, again, you're a man or a woman, because I've seen a lot of uh, creative men who also you know, doubt their self-worth and, and doubt what they're contributing, um, but it's even more so for women. Um, and, I'm very happy to see that a lot of women now are starting to stand up a little bit more for the pay that they're getting um, in terms of projects. And it also makes me very happy to see some men who are sort of stepping up as allies mm -hmm. to help women get equal pay. Um, because I, I, I think that's, that's a very, very, very important thing. Um, but yes, you're right. It's, you know, if you, if you don't have the self-confidence to ask for your, for your worth and understand your worth, um, that is the first step. Yeah. Cause nobody's going to pay you if you don't think you're worth it. Hey, if you're a copywriter looking to break the six-figure mark this year, applications for my program, Create Your Six-Figure Copywriting Business, are now open. This six-month accelerator will teach you the core foundations of my agency-style method for creative service providers so you can make the most money possible as a writer for hire. And no, you don't need to grow an agency to do it. You'll get the how-to, doable week-by-week -week action plan, and private coaching and mentorship from yours truly to get you there. Boost your sales game, 
up-level your work process, grow your client roster, and so much more. If you're curious to learn more, let's talk. I've opened up a few times in my calendar for quick chats just for this. Head to creativesmakingmoney.com slash chat to grab a time or go ahead and apply at thejamiejensen.com slash six-figure copywriter. What, what are the other steps that women can take to really like take their power back and take control of their money? If, if someone is listening to this and they're like, I don't know if my patterns are good or not. I don't know if like what I need to fix to become financially healthy or what I can do to sort of arm myself that way. What would you, what would you recommend? Well, I think the very first step is just to know where you are today. You know, it's like taking, taking a journey. Um, if I wanted to travel from Los Angeles to San Francisco, uh, I wouldn't just hop in my car and just go. Um, I'd look at a map and I'd be like, okay, what's the best route? Do I want to take the scenic route? Do I want to take the fastest route? You know, um, where should I stop for gas? <laughs> um, do I take a train? Do I take a car? And it's the same thing. It's, you know, getting financially healthy is a journey and, you need to know where you're starting from in order to figure out how to get to where you want to be. So I would say the first thing is actually make a budget and figure out what your actual expenses are, the ones that um, like your fixed expenses, like your rent and your mortgage and your groceries um, and your utilities. And then uh, the ones that are not fixed, like going out to dinner with friends or um, you know, buying some wine or going to the movies or whatever it is. Um, and, and, but really like drill down to like, you know, am I, am I spending like, you know, how much money am I spending on books? How much money am I spending on my credit cards every month? Um, and then once you kind of figure out that and you figure out how much you actually make, you can look and see what are the trade-offs I'm willing to make in order to save more money? Um, in, you know, where can I, you know, do I need to be spending $600 a month on a car lease for a BMW? Um, or would I rather take that money and pay down my credit cards? Um, so figuring out your budget and where you are, I think is step number one. Step number two would be to really think about what are the things that really make you happy in life? And, you know, to use Marie Kondo that spark joy. <laughs> um, and, 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 and prioritize those goals. And it's different for everybody. You know, for one person, it might be, I want to buy a house. For another person, it might be, I want to retire early. For another person, it might be, I want to quit my day job and, and you know, write a novel. Whatever that is, um, you have to figure out like what it is that you really want, what's most important, and then figure out the time frame. Is this something that I'm gonna do in a year, in five years, in 20 years? And then see how much you actually need to allocate to each of those, those um, I guess goal buckets, if you want to call them that, so that you can get to, to where you want to be. And that ties back into your budget. Because with your budget, you know, there are two ways to get more money to put towards your goals. One is to spend less, and the other one is to make more money. 
So you can also figure out like, what do I need to do with my career to make more money? Um, how do I, you know, I have these credit cards where I'm paying 18% a year on these credit cards. How do I, how do I get rid of my credit cards so that I can save money towards my dream of being a writer or save money towards um, buying my house um, or having more money for wine or whatever. The third step would really be about planning, like doing serious financial planning. And, and for that, you probably need to talk to a professional um, because that can get very complicated. Um, and then also what I would say as, as the fourth thing, and this is for everybody, start saving early and often as early as you can, because, you know, people when they're in their twenties and they think they're immortal and they think the future is, you know, really far ahead and they don't really think about it. Don't realize how fast 10 years go by, 20 years go by. And suddenly you're middle-aged, suddenly you're on the verge of retirement and you have nothing saved up. And the reason it's important to start saving early is um, something called compounding, where you're basically making money on top of money and it takes time to do that. So the more time you give yourself, uh, the more money you'll end up with. And it doesn't matter if you have even like $10 extra a month to put away towards savings and investing, do it. Um, eventually that $10 will turn into $1,000, just you know, a month that you can save. But getting into that habit is really important um, because what I've found is that it's, it's very difficult to make huge changes all at once in life. It's much easier to make small, consistent, incremental changes and do things consistently. And that's what gets you from point A to point B is um, just small, consistent habits. And saving and investing is, is a really big one. I love that. Are there more steps? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the thing is, it's all it's all related um, because at the end of the day, being being financially healthy is like a pie, right? There are different slices to the pie. Part of the part of it is having enough savings. Part of it is understanding your budget and having cash flow every month. Part of it is being able to negotiate for a better salary. Part of it is if you, for example, if you have children or obligations, making sure you have like insurance to mitigate risks, that you have a will, that you have, um, you know, uh, like a healthcare proxy and a living will, which this is actually, this is a little bit off topic in terms of um, financial stuff, but one of the things I see consistently as, um, as a financial advisor is so many people, especially when they have children, do not have an updated will, a living will and a healthcare proxy. And, and let me just, for those people who aren't sure what I'm talking about, let me just define what it is. So basically a will is a document, a legal document that says, when I pass away, this is how I want my assets distributed. And if you don't have a will, that means the state steps in and they distribute it how they want, which could be completely different from how you want. And you have to go, it, it's a very expensive process. It takes a really long time. It traumatizes everybody. 
So it's, it's a really good idea to have a will. A living will is basically if you are medically incapacitated and can't make medical decisions for yourself, it basically says medically, this is what I want. Um, and it helps the people who love you to make the decisions, your medical decisions for you that you would want them to, to make. And then a healthcare proxy is simply giving somebody the power to make that decision. Um, and of course, that's a conversation you have to have that with that person to see if they're okay with it. Because very often it's, it's a huge responsibility and they may be in a position where they're gonna have to make some very hard choices. So you have to, you have to make sure you have conversations. But a lot of people don't have that. And you know, the problem is if, if you get into an accident or God forbid something happens, um, people are gonna make choices for you that, that you wouldn't make for yourself. Um, so those three things in terms of estate planning, I think are, are very, very important. Um, the other thing going back to, I guess, financial stuff is um, really based on retirement because a lot of people don't really take a long-term view on retirement and they need to start to decide, you know, how much can I put in? And, and again, if you're talking about creatives, they have a different situation than somebody who's working for a big company, but you have to figure out like, what's the maximum I can put in? How, how is that going to positively or negatively affect my taxes? Because very often um, if you put money into a retirement plan, it's uh, tax deductible. Yeah. There so, are some, are, what are there? There are some IRAs that you can put money into that. I think like, then it's not it, like you don't get taxed on the income or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, you're talking about a Roth IRA. So what happens is with a Roth IRA, you put in after-tax money. And so whatever gains you make in the account, don't get taxed when you take them out. A regular IRA or a 401k plan or a SEP IRA, um, you put a before-tax money into it. The account grows tax-free. But then when you take it out, after you retire, you pay you taxes get, on the money the that you, you take. Yeah, because usually it's like, there's again, going back to the whole bucket analogy, in terms of taxes, there are three different buckets. It's like tax now, tax later, tax never. Um, <laughs> and there are very <laughs> few that are on so the tax helpful. never side. Yeah, um, but you need, usually most people, you, you need a tax now and a tax later bucket. Yeah. So a tax now would be like, uh, a normal brokerage account that is very liquid because the problem with retirement accounts is that there are certain maximums that you can contribute per year and you can't put in anything more than that. Uh, if you take the money out before you're 59 and a half, there's a 10% penalty and you pay income taxes on it. So the money you put in to your retirement fund, you pretty much want to forget about it. But day to day, you, you do need like expenses if you want to buy a house or if you want an emergency fund or you need something that's more liquid. So that's when you would have a normal uh, taxable brokerage account or investment account. Um, and also in terms of, of time frame and risk, there would probably be a difference between the two of them. So for example, because you know, you, 
if you have a retirement plan or a retirement fund, you're not going to retire maybe for like 30 years. So you have a 30 year, 20 year time horizon. So you don't have to worry so much about the ups and downs in the market. But if you have an investable tax account that you're going to use maybe in two years or five years, then you need to be cognizant of the risks involved and the, the increase in volatility. So um, that would also be something to keep in mind. Yeah. In terms of, I just have one more, I have one more, <laughs> I have two more questions for you, if that's okay, if you have time mm -hmm. for that. Okay. Sure. So one of them is related to, you know, one option is spend less another option is make more. Um, a lot of the audience on this podcast are creatives, entrepreneurs, they do have their own business. They are sort of doing their own thing to some extent and, and balancing that like financial need with creative desire, mm -hmm. creative passion, creative inspiration. And so uh, my question around this really is for the person who is, you know, starting their business and, and they're making investments to sort of build a business, grow a business, get the support they need to expand. I'm curious if you have a particular attitude towards like investing as it investing as as it relates to business in the interest of growth and having an ROI compared to the concept of spending or expenses in general. Does that make sense? Like, do you have a thought process around decision-making, you know, for someone around that, if they're like considering an investment and they're not sure, or if they want to take this leap into like starting their own business, striking out on their own. And so they have to sort of make a financial transition. Does that make sense? Yes, no, that, that makes total sense. Um, I think it, it, it depends on whether or not they're able, if you're starting a business and you can sort of keep your day job and, and sort of start a business in parallel, I think that's probably the best way to do it simply because it gives you a sense of stability and it gives you income so you're not struggling as much. Um, if you wanna give up your job altogether to then start a business and you wanna rely on, on your investments, is that, is that what you're basically saying? If you have to rely on your investments? Well, to... I'm saying like when you start your business, you have to invest in it financially. You have to put money in to get money out. Right. So I'm, so, thinking, I'm thinking about the person who's listening to this and is like, well, what if I have a retirement fund that I want to use and invest in my business? Or what if I have money saved that I want to use and invest in, in my business? Or what if, um, I have six months of like, of money saved up that I have as my emergency fund, but I really feel like I need to, I need to figure out, you know, how I'm going to move forward because I need some, some capital for my own like ventures. You know what I right. mean? Yes. Well, as far as the retirement fund goes, you won't be able to access that. Um, again, without a 10% penalty and paying tons of taxes. So financially, that's a non-starter to, to dig into your retirement fund. As far as digging into your savings, that's definitely a possibility. But then again, it goes back to planning, right? So you have to know exactly what your expenses are not only your personal expenses, because you're going to have to cover your personal expenses as well as your business expenses. And you have to figure out, okay, what are all my startup costs going to be for the next year? And how much money do I have in the bank that will cover it? Or is there a way that I can find investors? 
Um, or, you know, most people, what they do is, is they go to friends and family to help raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are usually the options. And, and when you're starting a business, there's always that leap that you're taking and that risk that you're taking. And, and the truth is you could run out of money. I mean, there's, there's no way, unless you're, you know exactly that you have a second income stream coming in from somewhere, um, you're basically jumping into it without a net. Mm-hmm. And you could be out of money in six months. And, and the only thing is you look at your finances and you're like, okay, I have three months to make this work or I have six months to make this work. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I'm up the creek without a paddle. Yep. Uh, which is again, why I think if you're starting your own business and and you don't have that much money set aside, um, you have to find a, you know, a job, maybe a part-time job or something that helps you pay the bills. Um, you have to be ruthless and cutting your expenses down to the bones. You have to know, um, you know, how much more money you're going to be paying if you're not with a company, how much more money you're going to be paying for health insurance? Because mm-hmm. um, that's going to be a big expense. Um, are your taxes going to, you know, very often for people that are entrepreneurs, they have to pay taxes quarterly. It's not every April 15th. So yeah. are you going to have the cash flow for that? Yeah. I think um, that depends on how you file too, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so you have to, again, it's, it's about planning. It's about really knowing where you are today in order to figure out where you're going to be in six months. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that there's 101 ways to figure it out and find a plan that works for you. But so much of it is like, what's your custom plan based right. on where you are, where you want to go and like your risk tolerance yeah. and, and what your runway is, your cash Absolutely. runway. Absolutely. Cause every person is different and everyone's situation is different. Everyone's needs are different. Um, You know, if you have a single mother who wants to start a business, her responsibilities are going to be very different than some, somebody who's like 20 years old and, you know, has some money in the bank, but no responsibilities or can bartend or do whatever, you know? Um, So yeah, that's a very different situation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So I have to ask you the $5 million question, which (laughs) is, yes, (laughs) I think you've given everyone a lot to think about and a lot to like mull over and be like, I need to figure all of this out. Please tell me how to do that. So I'm going to get to that at the, but can I tell you something? I know a lot of, we've gone through a lot of things and I think some people might feel like it's a lot of information and might feel a little overwhelmed. What I want to tell people is don't feel overwhelmed. Um, take baby steps, do little things to, to make you feel more in control of your life, whether it's paying down one credit card or paying down a little bit more every month on one credit card or putting $10 aside more every month into your savings, um, or, you know, working on your budget, um, maybe a little bit every week. It doesn't have to be all at once. It doesn't have to be an overwhelming experience make it fun, figure out like why you want to do this in a positive way so that you're not functioning from a place of fear or feeling overwhelmed, but you're functioning from a place of, oh my God, my life has so many possibilities. 
and I can actually make these things come true. I just need to do a few things first. So I, and I don't want people to feel like, oh my God, this is, this is so much to do. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Take deep breaths, take baby steps. Mm -hmm. So $5 million question. Mm -hmm. If $5 million dropped into your lap and there was no strings attached and you could just do whatever you wanted to do with it and you didn't have to pay taxes on it even, it was just like, here you go. What would you do with the money? Honestly? I mean, I mean, I don't want you to lie to me. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, um, I would probably invest it because you can live very well off the interest off of $5 million. Mm -hmm. Um, I would I'd probably invest it or, you know, I'd invest part of it. And then part of it, I would start some sort of a company where I can help other people um, grow and create incomes and, and just, you know, help people like build jobs, build opportunities for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what I would do with it. Yeah. I love that. Yay. So where can people find more about you, learn more about you, like grab anything that you have that can help them take the baby steps and figure this out for themselves or the big steps, the big steps, baby steps, sure. all the steps in between. <laughs> so, like I said, I wear two hats and one of my hats is, is sort of doing like personal financial coaching and helping people get into better habits around money. And I do that through a company I started called The Money Mind. And uh, you can go to themoney-mind.com. And if you put in your email, I actually have like a little handout, which is not so little because... I thought it was going to be 10 pages and it ended up being close to 30 pages uh, of financial strategies for women. Um, and I wanted people to sort of get a lot of value out of it, which is why it's so long. Um, and it's totally free. All you have to do is go on the website, sign up. And uh, if you want to have a conversation with me, you can make an appointment with me there. On the other hand, if if somebody is interested in actual financial planning and financial advisory and investment management, they can reach me through Optimus Capital and they can email me at ADA, A-D-A, at OptimistCap.com and that's O-P-T-I-M-I-S-T-C-A-P.com. And uh, I'd love to talk to anybody who, who wants help with uh, getting financially healthy. Awesome, thank you so much, Ada. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Creatives Making Money. If you found value in this episode, please don't go anywhere before leaving a rating, review, and subscribing. Also, sharing how you connected with this episode really makes my day. So please, please, please tag me on Instagram at Jamie Lynn Jensen and let me know how this episode helped you. Also, our free Facebook community accepts new members every Monday. So if you're a writer entrepreneur, come join my write and make money community at creativesmakingmoney.com slash group. You can find all important links and details in this episode's show notes available at creativesmakingmoney.com. And as always, create like you mean it. <laughs>